Dad, there's a bear. No, Christine, that's a frog. Bears wear hats. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolain. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 146, back to Cole's choice. What are we talking about today? We are talking about The Great Muppet Caper from 1981, and this was Jim Henson's directorial debut, and I think you can really see that. No one knows this world better than he does, which doesn't always translate to good results when the creator takes over as director, but in this case, it is magnificent. It also stars Henson, along with Frank Oz, Jerry Nelson, Richard Hunt, Dave Goles, Steve Whitmire, Diana Rigg, and Charles Grodin, along with cameos galore. It's a musical mystery in which the Muppets are caught up in a jewel heist while investigating a robbery in London. And it's the second of the live-action Muppet movies and the only one that Henson himself directed. So why did you pick this one? Why are we talking about the Muppets today? One, I don't think we talk enough about family and kids' films on here. I really would like to focus a little bit more on that as much as we can and still give everything kind of equal treatment. But two, I chose it because we all deserve a break after this year, and we should be able to take a moment here together and relax and laugh if we can. Well, if you were to ask moi, I think it's a great (laughs) choice. Yeah, me too. I've loved The Muppets. For as long as I can remember. And they've been around for even longer than that. The first incarnation of the Muppets began in 1955. Then they eventually ended up on Sesame Street starting in 1969, which is where I obviously became aware of them. Sesame Street was basically created when I was created. So I've literally never been without the Muppets in my life. Me coming five years after in 75, the same thing. And then, sort of coinciding with you, it went from Sesame Street to The Muppet Show, and then on to the feature films, and I cannot think of an artistic creation or entertainment-slash-educational property that's better, for children specifically, than what Jim Henson and company dreamed up to accompany you through your formative years. The lessons that I glean from all of that still loom so large, and some I'm even still working on. Tolerance, perseverance fun, following your dream, and very importantly to me, the value of having music as a background for everything in your life. I was a music kid even before I was a movie kid, which is one of the big reasons why this is my favorite Muppet movie. Did you know, I learned this by the way, I didn't know this, Fraggle Rock, which was a show I loved as well, that was all about promoting understanding between cultures. I had no idea. Because it's all just so seamless. Yeah, Jim Henson's going to teach you some lessons whether you like it or not. He's sneaky that way. And that makes me think of one thing I want to talk about a little bit before we get into the movie itself here, and it's how these characters are presented and perceived and how kids react to them. These main Muppet characters in these feature films, Kermit, Miss Piggy, Fozzie, that whole crew, they are presented, I think, ostensibly as adults versus the animated or puppet 
child protagonist I see mostly on kids shows on television. Even this movie being an offshoot of an offshoot of Sesame Street, where some of Henson's creations are obviously more childlike, like Elmo. With that background, Henson and company still really perfected this fine mix, I think, of material for kids and adults coexisting within the same framework. And I love it because I feel like it's genuine. This was before it became much more a cynical thing of we have to throw in an adult joke every six pages to mollify the parents who are being forced to bring their kids to these movies. I imagine as an adult in 1981, my mom, for instance, you didn't have to go to a Muppet movie. You wanted to go to a Muppet movie. And now I think Pixar has taken this blueprint of kid-level, adult-level stuff and really built an empire on it. And I think they do a good job with it most of the time. Yeah, I remember how excited we were to go see The Muppets Take Manhattan. My mom couldn't wait. Are you like me, too? I think of most of those anthropomorphic Pixar characters as adults, too, in Toy Story and Cars, etc. You think of them as adults? Yes, they all have some sort of created experience that kids just wouldn't have. Right, so I think it's an interesting pathology, because then what are the kids that are watching latching onto? Is it aspirational? Do they want to be having the kind of grown-up adventures that the Muppets are having? Or do they think of the Muppets more as their peers? Or do they even notice how old do they think the Muppets are? You asked me this while we were watching, and I couldn't reasonably remember how I thought of it then, so I went right to the source. I asked two of our favorite kids in the world, Everett and Dorothy, the children of our friends Brian and Sela, who run Pathway Comics, what they thought, and it was pretty illuminating. Everett, who's the younger, he thought Kermit and Fozzie were in their mid-40s. Which is where I am. With Fozzie being the oldest and Miss Piggy around 30. And then Dorothy, she thought they were all sort of around their mid-20s with Fozzie being the youngest. She perceived him exactly the opposite. But they both definitely see them as grown-ups. And these are very perceptive, inquisitive kids, so I think I have to go with that rather than just an other, quote-unquote. But I think it's an interesting line to draw about your style of viewing as an adult and as a kid. They are watching as an outsider a little bit, I think. The Muppets do things like foil a jewel heist as opposed to a more participatory experience like Dora the Explorer or Encyclopedia Brown or something like that, where they may be imagining themselves as doing those things with a more obvious child character as their avatar. I think the bottom line is that everyone involved with the Muppets and all of their projects were all basically brilliant, and they gave everyone watching credit for being able to go along for the ride. Another thing that I think works for everybody is that you mentioned the lessons, but they take them kind of light and breezy. They're not heavy-handed. They're not didactic. It's not Tuesdays with Maury, by the way. <laughs> It's about having relationships. It's about being true and honest, not at a schmaltzy level. Well, let's get to the movie itself. The opening fanfare with Animal obviously really spoke to me. As a kid, I think I related to Animal the most. Even the drumming aspect. My first drum set was a Muppet-branded toy drum kit that we got out of the JCPenney catalog. I don't think it was long before I'd wrecked that. The drum heads, they were only made of paper, so you can imagine how long that lasted. But I played it into the ground, just banging away to my heart's content. But it certainly sets a super fun tone to start with, and then they're just off to the races. They're in all sorts of fantastic scenarios right off the bat, flying in hot air balloons, 
opening this whole thing with a big Broadway-style production number. There's a daring daylight robbery. And with all that, they still manage to succinctly lay out the plot for everyone while all of this is going on around them. And to be incredibly visually compelling, too, especially all of the robbery stuff, I just love it. And I want to point out again, it's happening with puppetry, live action work, some robotic stuff, but we're not seeing CGI here. And this is all in the first five minutes. This thing is action packed. And something I appreciated then and now, they are also super meta. That is a really fun aspect of this for me. The characters themselves are referring to being in the opening credits. At one point, Kermit gives Miss Piggy notes on her performance. They're breaking the fourth wall all the time. And as a kid, I especially really enjoyed that stuff. It felt like they were inviting me into their world. That to me is a little bit of the aspirational part where you feel like the character is talking just to me. They want me to have fun too. And I always thought as a kid, and I think this is a kid thing, the more anarchic something gets, the more rules they break, the more fun it inspires in you as a little kid. You know that you're doing something different. Yeah, it wasn't just that they were talking to me. It was like I was experiencing the things that they were with them. It's such a smart choice. When you go back and look at all the Muppet properties, they did this sort of thing all the time. And I think what you were saying is exactly right. It feels joyfully conspiratorial when they are asking me as a kid if I notice these things too and want to get in on this in this slightly surreal way. I remember being amazed to find out that Kermit and Fozzie are identical twins. Did it hit you the same way the first time you saw this? Well, I couldn't tell them apart. <laughs> this came to be one of my absolute favorite recurring jokes here. And then there's that photo with Jack Warden and their dad that just nails the thing shut. That is such a funny visual joke. But so we've established that they're adults here, but there's also another divide. There's a human-non-human -human divide. And I think that that's actually addressed specifically much more often and to great comic effect. We recognize that they are treated more like animals once they're on the plane to London because they're traveling in the cargo hold in cages. But there's an important distinction. They seem blissfully unaware of all this as they refer to it as ninth class. <laughs> it just seems to be a world in which we all can exist together, which is a pretty fun one. Gonzo is labeled a whatever, by the way. <laughs> Speaking of, they are then unceremoniously thrown out over London. The plane doesn't land. And Gonzo's response to being just tossed out into the wild blue yonder, whoopee! <laughs> I love how Gonzo embraces the chaos no matter what. He asks all the questions that I would ask when they're up in the balloon. He's wondering, how long can you plummet without blacking out? <laughs> he is the one that I really eventually came to be attached to, I think. I know I mentioned Animal in the beginning. Did everyone, probably, I assume everyone did, did they have a Muppet personality type that they connected with? Did you have one or two that were like that for you? Actually, let me guess first before you okay. answer that. Okay, tell me. Scooter. That was your guy, right? Stage managing is in your blood, so it has to be him. Plus, you probably had a cool satin jacket. I wish. No. <laughs> this will not surprise you, probably, when I explain why. I, on my sad days, when I was a kid, I always felt like Kermit then. I could kind of just relate to being a little put upon sometimes. He had a nice melancholy streak that I appreciated, yeah, for absolutely. sure. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to be more like Animal, though, every day. 
Well, I think Animal and Gonzo were my id and my ego, basically. But then there's a Dark Horse third character, the Swedish chef. Of course. Wait a minute. <laughs> Not the guys in the balcony. Come on. I love them. But the Swedish chef, my mom always tells this story about how I was such a serious child all the time. But the Swedish chef, she could always count on turning on that show. And that was the one thing in my very small youth that made me laugh like an idiot every time. So I have this subconscious connection to him. I do think there's a bit of anarchy there. But maybe this is just all about me eventually wanting to move to Scandinavia. <laughs> it could be that. <laughs> Did you have one that made up a holy triumvirate? You mentioned two already. Probably Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe Grover, speaking of Sesame oh, great, Street. Yeah. But I definitely see the Gonzo part. Because you just want to let everybody's freak flag fly. Absolutely. And freak flags are in no short supply in this next segment when we check in at the Happiness Hotel. This is such a great scene because so much of the Muppet ethos is not just about finding your own people, but celebrating them too. And that's exactly what this does. This may be the biggest, most grand distillation of that idea in the Muppet canon. And it has a key change. And you know how much I love key changes. But everyone is welcome here. Spread out, get comfortable, get weird, sing a song. And very importantly, everyone here is an equal and don't underestimate anyone. We even find out that Animal is an esthete of sorts. They went to the National Gallery and he's upset because he didn't get to see any Renoir. <laughs> it's just so wonderful from start to finish. And in addition to all these other blessings, Dame Diana Rigg is in the house. Rest in peace. I'm so glad you said the Dame. I was going to correct you if you didn't. <laughs> of course I would. She doesn't get to do a lot of the more outrageous stuff, unfortunately. But can you think of a better person to guide us through a lot of this exposition, including about her lout of a brother, Charles Grodin, and introduce us to London and its world of haute couture? Absolutely. She's so great. And she gets to just give it to the hilt. She gets to swan in and swan out and be dramatic and wonderful. This was likely my first exposure to her, actually, thinking back. I don't think at 11 I was familiar with her being in the Avengers yet. And it would be a few more years before she started hosting Mystery on PBS, which would have been the other way I regularly saw her. For me, in between that, it was Evil Under the Sun, which came ah. right after this. Now, she actually took this job because of how much her daughter loved Miss Piggy. And why wouldn't she? Because Miss Piggy knows how to make an entrance, which we see right here. Her portfolio is amazing. By the way, you know who her daughter is? No. The actress Rachel Sterling. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, as a wee lass, Rachel Sterling was terrified by these large versions of Miss Piggy. They had a ton of them around the set in different variations, large and small, some extra pieces, arms and legs laying around. Because we do actually see her in full body several times in the film. So a classic case of never meet your Muppet idols? No, actually, I'm sure she had a blast once she realized this is how this works. To get to meet Miss Piggy at four or five years old would it blow my mind. I can definitely see, though... Having the puppet being bigger than you would be a little yeah. off-putting when you're used to seeing her basically knees up or with her legs crossed with her little high heels on. You mentioned earlier learning lessons that you didn't intend to or weren't expecting, and I think there's a great one right here. It's just one of a ton of nods in this movie to classic cinema, and in this case, in the tradition of Hitchcock, 
we have a great and hilariously named MacGuffin, the baseball diamond. The pursuit of this ultimately inconsequential object, it provides the framework for us to actually hang the real story on, and that is the romance of Kermit and Miss Piggy. But I love that they incorporate techniques like this into their storytelling. I'm being given a film education, and I didn't even realize it at the time. And it didn't stop with a MacGuffin. You have a classic case of mistaken identity, with Kermit taking Miss Piggy to be Lady Holiday, and of course, the time-honored trope of true love wins in the end. I think it's really interesting that that's the part that you and I respond to so much. Some of these just beautiful homages to other genres and specific films. Because that's something that a number of critics didn't like about it, that they thought that the Muppets were basically shoved in to another film. And I think they entirely miss the point. Henson was making something fun and outlandish and loving those influences. And that, to me, speaks to the durability of the characters and the brilliance, again, of the writing. While I'm thinking about it, I want to jump back to something that we mentioned just a little bit ago. This section, after Kermit first meets Miss Piggy, it puts us squarely back in the world of grown-up stuff. He's shaving, they're going on a date, and I like that the whole crew wants to go with him on this date. They're ushering kids gently into these ideas, I think, by having the whole crew be enthusiastic and encouraging and eager to participate. If you were a kid, for instance, who was beginning to develop some of these more grown-up feelings and your friends in the schoolyard weren't as interested in this gross, mushy stuff, or at least pretending not to be, and maybe you felt a little isolated or like you were the only one in the world that felt this way, you see the Muppets have your back. They were telling you that this is cool and these feelings are fun, if a bit nerve-wracking, and they're not trying to make it weird, or at least... Not in the way that your friends are. They're making it weird, for sure, by all wanting to go on a 30-person date, essentially. But it's not the same as being told, eh, you shouldn't be feeling that way. And then once they get to the club, speaking of adult stuff, they go as far as to include adultery jokes, even. Though I think that probably went over most kids' heads. Yeah, I'm sure. One thing, though, I want to give you a slightly different perspective on that. So being an only child, I didn't have siblings that were, you know, part of my crew. So my crew was the other neighborhood kids. And so it reflected that life that I had, where you build these friendships and they become essentially your family and everybody's in on having fun together. So you essentially had your own Muppet gang. I probably did. And I like that it underscores that idea. Like you said, you are not alone. There's somebody there that can go with you to and help you make this happen. So that is a helpful reminder for those kind of loner kids like me. Now, in a great dual cameo here, we have John Cleese and Joan Sanderson as husband and wife. And I think the last time I saw them partnered together was on one of my favorite Faulty Towers episodes in which they were actually adversaries. Maybe that's not that much different from how they are here. But she makes this beautifully deadpan British joke about, oh, I haven't been outside for 12 years. And now we often talk about how unintentional themes crop up and connections pop up when we juxtapose films and things happen unexpectedly. This is one I certainly wasn't expecting, but here it is. Just coincidentally, in the last episode about Black Narcissus, we were talking about perceptions of the British character. 
And I think setting this in London gives them a really great opportunity to poke gentle fun at these sort of toffee-nosed old money types and contrast these two and, to an even greater extent, the fashion industry and its inherent hierarchies with the Muppets and their humble egalitarianism. Well, speaking of people that you recognize, I would then know Joan Sanderson from tons of drama roles. And then, of course, I knew who John Cleese was. But I just loved seeing them in this incredibly fun bit because we get our idea of British marriage. Then we get men and women separately. And it's just insane. It's pitched so high, (laughs) but it's delivered like a drawing room play. It reminds me also of all the people I would see in ripping yarns that I was so used to, again, in kind of straight roles. So it gives me this better idea of how many dimensions they could play. My absolute favorite line of hers, though, is in the end, don't blame yourself, darling. (laughs) When he's going on this extended explanation about, well, I know it's not a supper club or it's more of a supper club. And I tried to, anyway, it's really, really funny. Well, while we are on the subject of comedy geniuses, we would be remiss if we did not spend some time focusing on Charles Grodin and how he is peerless at what he does. There really is no one else quite like him. When you look back at his body of work, everything from The Heartbreak Kid to this to Clifford, which I think is one of the most underratedly funny movies ever. Midnight Run. Oh, God, yes. So there's no one else that can do what he does. And his intensity here is so... Great to see. He's playing every emotion to the hilt, even overplaying it, but in such a funny way. I really appreciate him for going all in and committing to this heart and soul, it feels like. He really is the movie's secret weapon. He's a joy. The socks. Oh yeah, I was going to mention that. The size, the singing, the passion, the physical comedy. He's just so game. Yeah, I really like to point out the socks as... An example of the amount of detail they spend on developing his character in the midst of all this absurdity and how fun that is. Just the fancy socks gag alone is more effort than a lot of kids' movies put into their entire villain. First, we hear him off-screen, on the phone, ordering them. And then we get three shots throughout the movie of conspicuous placement of his flowered socks in the foreground of the shot. He's vain. He's fashion-obsessed. It's a great detail. In fact, his whole crew is like that. These are some stylish thieves. Now, we talked about this briefly kind of at the top of the show. We mentioned a few techniques that they used already, but let's get more into how much this movie leans on Golden Age Hollywood heavily. Everywhere you look when they're out on the town, everyone is in top hat and tails like they're Fred Astaire. They visit this supper club straight out of the Thin Man or even fancier than that. The Busby Berkeley influence on the production numbers is unmistakable. At one point, Miss Piggy is tap dancing like she's Eleanor Powell. But I have to wonder, who is all this for? Because I don't think legions of 10-year-olds were clamoring for their own remake of Million Dollar Mermaid. Speak for yourself. (laughs) Think about the six-year-old watching. Because who was this for? Me and my mom. This was a dream come true. All the influences that we've talked about, plus the road movies, which were a big deal in my house... It's pitched for me and also at the same time, the person I would become. So I could watch this at any age. 
I want to mention again one of those criticisms. This was Roger Ebert. He thought it wasn't really pitched right either, though I don't think he gives anyone enough credit. Because who cares if you're watching this and you don't know who Esther Williams was or who Busby Berkeley was? Isn't it fun to watch Miss Piggy swimming? Now, I know you love Roger Ebert in general. I appreciated him, too. I was a big fan. But all of a sudden, in the last couple of episodes, and including stuff that we're working on coming up, I was just reading today about how he really panned Harold and Maude. The same for me. One and a half stars. What the hell? Get it together, Ebert. Rest in peace. So I think when you look at all of these influences and you think about the age of the creators, it starts to really make sense, at least to me, because I think this was kids who grew up on the Little Rascals and Three Stooges and the Marx Brothers. They then became adults. And so they kind of expected everybody else to be able to make that jump with them, knowing that basically people with no sense of humor just wouldn't be able to do that. And Jim Henson talked about this in one of his early pitches. He wanted it to be an homage to early movie musicals because he loved them. And he just wanted everything to be joyful and have a positive attitude towards life and then have big, hilarious sequences with big laughs. So great. Achieved. And I think also why this seems to have broader appeal than you might think on paper. If you think about the time that it came out, we had That's Entertainment coming out in 1974. We have all of those folks growing up with those film packages sold to television. So you could see all of this early work and, you know, live with it on your Saturday afternoons. Yeah, Andy Hardy and Esther Williams on Saturday afternoon and then the Universal Monsters on the Late Late Movie. Does that make sense to you? It does. I actually think the second part of your explanation makes more sense to me, though. When I ask, who is this for? The side I actually ultimately come down on is more, it's for the creators. It's great that it found an audience and that you at six and your mother at what, 26, 30? Right, at, yeah. Mm -hmm. She loved it too. But I think more than anything, it's for the people making it. That's my first inclination. I get the feeling that, like you say, they are paying tribute to what they loved. I mentioned that this was the only one of the Muppet movies that Henson himself directed. In retrospect, it clearly is a pet project. Not only was he going to push the bounds of what people thought the Muppets could do based upon the first Muppet movie, but he was also going to find a way to include a nod to everything that made movies magical to him. I noted in the beginning that the Muppets were first created in 1955, so Henson and his crew were entering entertainment as that golden age was kind of on its last legs, and it seems like he must have just always been particularly taken with it. And this sort of is a thread that runs through everything. When you look back at what Henson was doing overall, a lot of it was kind of anachronistic. The Muppet Show was especially a throwback in that way. It was, at its heart, about both show business and the business of show. They were practically doing vaudeville every week on The Muppet Show, and we were getting this fun look behind the scenes at what it took to put on that show. So in retrospect, I can see why The Muppet Show would really appeal to a young Erica with your love of theater, getting to see the orchestra pit and the opera boxes and the rigging and the set changes every week must have been super exciting. So do you actually have favorite Muppet Show memories? So, sadly, for me, I don't really remember The Muppet Show oh, no. that much. I don't know if it was just my age hmm. or 
maybe we didn't watch it that much. I don't think that's the case because I remember my parents loving the Muppets too. Well, we have the DVD collection, so I know what we're starting soon. Yes, I do need to start with that. What I do have, though, are tons of Sesame Street Mm -hmm. memories. And then, actually, Muppet Babies, I loved that show. Then it has to be an age thing, right? You just fell in that valley in between those two things where you weren't cognizant of this thing. I must have. Did you watch the Muppet Babies at all? I did a little bit. I think it's an age thing, too. I was a little too old for it, I think. Well, I loved it, if you remember it at all. All of those film references. Because of who my mom is, I got tons of the Sesame Street references as well that I think maybe other kids might not have, or maybe just sort of getting that vibe, like Kermit's news flashes. Lots of little things meant a lot to me. My mom told me stories using Snuffleupagus as the main character, and she would fashion names around those sorts of punny words or the arty way that they would use words and names. She made up Skillamadoop for me. (laughs) Yeah, it was super fun. I had my favorite Sesame Street book. It was all about Duke David of Dundeedle and his dumb but adorable daughter, Dora. (laughs) Of course, Sherlock Hemlock was in there too. So we were Anglophiles even then. There's just so much geared towards making little me so happy The way those words sounded in my head just was so delightful. Well, even though you haven't seen a ton, I have played for you my favorite Muppet Show musical memory of all time. And that is Peter Sellers playing this itinerant preacher singing about the evils of cigarettes and whiskey and wild, wild women. I will never forget that song. The first solo record I made, in fact, when I moved to Austin has that song on it. I love it so much. Awesome. And all of the background players in that number, too. And then the whole Alice Cooper episode total is a close second because it's just so sinister for the Muppets. It really appealed to me when I was just a little creepo. I do remember loving that there was the Janice character. I thought, oh, hey, that could be me. While we are talking about the Muppet show, one of the things I think that also set the movies apart from that when they first debuted was that they weren't in their own theater anymore. They were loose in the world, which was super cool to see as a kid. They were still flying by the seat of their pants, but less in control of the circumstances because they weren't on their home turf anymore. It raised the stakes from what we were used to with them. And the character's response to these situations as a whole was always one of the things that really struck me. The perseverance thing that I mentioned above being one of their main lessons This body of work is so much about finding equal value in entertainment and education and not to sell either part of that equation short. The TV stuff, especially Sesame Street, obviously that leaned more toward the education side. But these movies, as entertaining as they are, and they are very entertaining, they still had something to teach us about ourselves, the world around us, and specifically how we interact with that world. They didn't downplay emotional intelligence. They recognized it as a crucial part of our continuing education. And I think that's when you get why they appeal to kids when they are out in the world, because the world is not necessarily made for them. It's not pitched at their level. So that feels like a kid experience. And the list of cameos here is long, too, with an emphasis on the Brits, which I like. In addition to Jack Warden and John Cleese and Joan Sanderson, we have Robert Morley, Lantern favorite Peter Ustinov, 
whom Miss Piggy unceremoniously karate chops. Speaking of Evil Under the Sun, he and Diana Rigg together. Michael Robbins, Tommy Godfrey, and a number of others. Did you have a favorite cameo? It's really tough, and I've got two. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> so, as adult me, knowing more about this process, it's actually Richard Hunt. Hmm. One of the puppeteers, and he shows up as a cab driver, so it's just fun to spot him. As the sort of non-metamy, it's Peter Falk. <laughs> you picked mine, too. Oh, okay, darn it. Because this is the greatest cameo in the history of film. Case closed. Okay, done. His rambling, crazy story about buying a dry cleaners with your brother-in-law, Bernie, and getting into the glass slipper business. Would you like to buy a watch? It is the best. I like to think that he just wrote that himself. I like to think that not only did he write it himself, he wasn't even supposed to be in the movie. He just wandered up one day and they just let it roll. <laughs> that sounds good too. Well, let's talk about the skill of the puppetry a little bit. When you watch closely, it's the little things that mean so much. I think you said that already. But the range of emotions that they can express by just slightly changing the shape of the hand in Kermit's head is astounding. They literally move a fraction of an inch and it goes from tragedy to comedy, just like that. And then they have these large-scale set pieces that are just astounding, too. We already talked about when they arrive at the Happiness Hotel. But how about when they go on this big group outing with everyone riding bikes? It maybe disproportionately amuses me to see any of them doing anything with their legs. It always makes me laugh, especially Kermit. I love to see him showing off here doing handstands on his bike seat. This sequence, it feels so effortless and magical. So we may have mentioned this way back when, when we talked about Emmett Otter for the Patreon episode. Henson was just a complete vanguard with having puppets actually move around within space. It seems like before, you might be thinking of that kind of Punch and Judy style, mm -hmm. where basically the TV screen is the proscenium for the puppets, and they come out from behind literal curtains. I was reading about how he elevated the platforms for his puppet production so the puppeteers could actually move around freely, which is a huge deal, other than being under the table, for example. Speaking of Sesame Street again, just for a second, I even loved those moments when you could see the little sticks that came out of their armature. Mm -hmm. It never took me out of the action. And to think again that this was all captured without special effects, this is amazing. The swimming sequence, that took something like three days to film. And it's just all so beautiful. I just love it so much. And one of the big things that I like about the bike sequence, it actually shares something in common with their introduction to the Happiness Hotel. It's this inclusivity. Not only is it upping the ante as far as spectacle goes from the first Muppet movie where we saw Kermit ride a bike for the first time, but it's more of that wonderful one for all and all for one camaraderie. Every single Muppet in the movie is invited along to take part in this outing. Everybody's on their bike. No one gets left out of the moments that are the most fun. It's for everyone. And these are the things that you may not consciously notice or be able to articulate as a kid, but I really think you feel that. And the bike ride, it also highlights another idea that was maybe one of the most important in their entire body of work, the relationship dynamic between Kermit and Miss Piggy. We see him fall into her arms while she is pedaling, and he just continues to ride there in her lap, having the best time. Miss Piggy, she was often in a more dominant position in the relationship when it came to their interactions, but she is just so much larger than life. 
what else can you do? I think on the one hand, it's really healthy for kids to see that sometimes the male character can just relax and be in good hands with their partner. And I think it also may have been a little subversive for 1981, really putting this idea out there that the man isn't always in charge, nor does he have to be. So it undercut some of the macho energy bullshit that I'm sure Henson and his contemporaries often encountered as they were growing up. And for me, I thought it was really lovely to think that we're re-examining what we thought was traditionally beautiful. Speaking of Piggy, you know, I don't like characters who are overly confident and that often turned me off to Miss Piggy, but here she strikes exactly the right balance. Well, did you have a favorite song or production number with all this stuff? For sure. And I can't wait to talk about the music right now. So you got to bear with me for a little bit. (laughs) I love the first big production number. It's that backlot, New York street, the huge dance number, Kermit, Fozzie and Gonzo bobbing in the street. And I love it because it's incredibly diverse. If you look at this film, including all the background players, there is so much diversity here. It was surprising to me to watch at this point. I love it because, again, as a kid, it was like the movie version of fame, plus the beginning of Superman. Me not knowing that those were also throwbacks as well. Mm -hmm. For me, and I think for you, you mentioned this earlier, the Muppets have always been about music. Think about Emmett Otter, Think Paul Williams and the Rainbow oh, Connection. One of my favorites. I love Paul Williams so much. By the way, there's a great video you have to watch. It's Paul Williams talking about that song and how he finally cracked the code of the arrangement because he realized that Jim Henson sang in Kermit speak, which was short syllables. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? That sort of flow. So as a music person, I think that sort of talk would really interest you. But here, this gives me a chance to talk about Joe Raposo, who did all the music. He was nominated for an Academy Award for the first time it happens for this film. And we also would know his music from Sesame Street. He wrote the theme song, by the way. He wrote Be in Green. He wrote C is for Cookie. And that's good enough for <laughs> that's me. classic. He was incredibly talented, and he brought a ton of sophistication to the music because he was so well-trained. He used all of these other styles to make it just so listenable and true and fun. So that's my Joe Raposo rant right there. Well, for me, the Esther Williams stuff is just incredible. And then Grodin singing in that oval insert, that's just the icing on the cake. That's the best. That's next level. But it's so hard to pick. You're right. And it wasn't just the musical numbers that were competing for attention. For what is ostensibly a crime film, they pay more homage to other genres most of the time. There's musical stuff. There's love story stuff. Fashion. Investigative journalism. Case in point, look at all the loose ends that are not tied up. And plot points that are left unresolved when the movie ends. And we just don't care. Yeah, we never see Lady Holiday again. We do get Miss Piggy doing the stunt motorcycle, which is pretty darn fun. Most importantly, Kermit and Miss Piggy's love story goes on. That's been foregrounded. And so it wasn't just a baseball diamond. Practically the entire movie was a MacGuffin for that romance and to hang these musical numbers on. There was so much MacGuffin, all it was missing was Mr. Memory from the 39 Steps. (laughs) It's a hangout movie. It's a road movie. It's everything. Well, we're nearing the exciting finale. And Gonzo, of course, because he's doing something weird, overhears the heist plan. 
and they have to get all the gears in motion to foil this big robbery. And there is a very sweet moment tucked into all of this when their backs are against the wall. Fozzie rallies the troops. It falls to him. And I think it's so touching when he acknowledges how hard that was for him to do. Everyone gets their moment to shine. Another big lesson we learn from the Muppets, everyone has a part to play in our collective adventure. So before we get to the big finish, I wanted to do a quick rundown of these stray things that I love from this last section. Kermit's lawyer disguise is incredible. <laughs> that with, name. <laughs> with all of his stray hairs sticking out from his hat everywhere. They use a grappling hook, which immediately got my attention because I made one of those for myself when I was a kid. How? Putting things together. Oh my gosh. Taking things out of the shed. Tying them up, wrapping ropes around it, climbing the tree in the front yard with it. We obviously didn't have the right shed. <laughs> and then, one of the funniest things ever is when people just take off running in a film. And they all scatter in ten different directions when the cops show up. And I love this. I laugh out loud at that moment every time. I want to mention, again, that kind of fun wordplay that's not incredibly intellectual, but just totally amusing to me. Carla, Marla, and Darla are the names of the models slash heisters. I love when they're trying to get into the museum and they've got the delivering the pepperoni pizza <laughs> gag. And when the guard's sort of not looking, about 500 Muppets go by. And then the deus ex machina of this whole thing is Miss Piggy and her evil Knievel-style motorcycle, which arrives just at the right time. You know that spoke to my little daredevil heart. And so they save the day, of course, like they very well should, and everything generally, minus those plot points we mentioned, is nicely wrapped up, and everything is in its place with the person they should be with. And they head home to the U.S., and this gag returns of this guy throwing them all out of the airplane never fails to make me laugh because he is so callous and weird about it. He is so excited to be doing this, throwing people out of an airplane <laughs> mid-flight. And then we have one last photo at the end, and Gonzo, very appropriately, I think, has the last word because for me, the lesson I take from this most of all is to live as much like Gonzo as possible, laugh in the face of death. Sounds good. I just want to throw one last plug in there for Kermit being absolutely everything great in the world. He's basically a frog Jimmy Stewart. Well, the end. Did you have a good time with that? I had a great time. Excellent. Do you have a good time for us with your recommendation? I do. I don't know if you've seen this one. I don't think we've talked about oh, okay. it a ton. I chose The Muppets from 2011. This was directed by James Bobin and starring Jason Siegel, who also co-wrote it, and Amy Adams. This is, again, why I think Muppets can just live forever. Jim Henson felt like puppets were for all ages, and I think you see that here, especially because this was written by fans. Now, I had to be reminded of the plot, because I basically just remember it being about relationships, especially with Gary and his adopted brother, Walter. That basically ties back to the Kermit and Fozzie being twins joke, right? Exactly. It's hilarious here. There's Gary's girlfriend, Mary, and then all the Muppets themselves. It becomes basically a let's get the band back mm. together and put on a big show to save the whatever kind of movie, which you know appeals to me. It's a load of fun. It's really sweet. And I like the music so much. Brett McKenzie of Flight of the Concords wrote some of the songs, he, in fact, won Best Original Song for Man or Muppet. This was the first Muppets production to win an Oscar. Have you seen it? 
I have not, unfortunately. I do really recommend this. It's just joy from start to finish. Well, we'll binge the show and then watch the movie. Sounds good to me. What's your recommendation? My recommendation this time is Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs from 2009. And this is an animated film directed by Phil Lord and Christopher Miller and based on the 1978 children's book by Judy and Ron Barrett. It stars Bill Hader, Anna Ferris, James Caan, Bruce Campbell, and Mr. T, among many others. And it is the story of Flint Lockwood, an aspiring young scientist, who develops a machine that can turn water into food. Along the way, the machine gains sentience and begins to develop food storms, so Flint must find a way to destroy his creation in order to save the world. I picked this because it is my favorite example of that thing I was saying about a genuine non-cynical blend of material for both kids and adults that I have experienced in recent years. The other reason I picked it, and this is no exaggeration, no film has made me laugh harder in the theater that I can recall. I must have just been in the right mood for it, but my sides were literally aching when this was over. Tears from laughing so hard. I'm amazed they didn't have to just carry me out of the place on a stretcher. And you know, I'm reluctant occasionally, especially earlier days, to watch animation. So I was reluctant to watch this, and I'm so glad you showed it to me because it is as funny as you say. I was actually worried when I did that because I thought maybe it was just a right time, right place thing, and that it wouldn't hold up. But since then, I've showed it for one of my movie nights, and it was a huge hit for everybody. And then we watched it not too long ago, and it still worked, like you say. So since the impetus for this episode was to pick something that felt good, I'm continuing that with my recommendation, because this is a laugh riot that is sweet and uplifting as well. So once again, that's two great recommendations, The Muppets and Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. And that brings us to the end of episode 146. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Mateo Boscarol, Terry and Liz at the Happily Cinemaried Podcast, Katie Armour, Nicole Davis from the Movie Go Round Podcast, The Fine Gentleman of Fuds on Film, Spencer Seams at the We Cut Heads Podcast, Lisey Tribble Russell, and Mr. Renoir at the Cinema Renoir Film School. If you are sharing the show we're talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>